I'll begin with a story. We'll read our passage and get into our study after that. It was about seven months ago. I think it was early July. Uh, I had just come back from a, um, a difficult meeting with the leaders of our church. Uh, what we've been going through, we're just coming to a head and, you know, a real tough meeting. God was humbling me. I had just come home, and one of the first things I did was got my mail, and there was a letter from the IRS office, never a good thing. And we had been going back with the IRS, and we had some miscommunication. Jim Rickard, he was here a few years ago. He does taxes. Uh, he does he files taxes for pastors, and so we're expecting a small refund from our beloved U.S. government, and instead of a refund, they were penalizing us, and they were telling us that we owed them over $8,000. Right as I was explaining that to my wife, we had my nephew from Korea staying with us, and he had put our youngest son, Elias, on our high chair. But I guess in Korea, they don't strap in little babies when they put them on a high chair. They have a different philosophy of, I don't know, caring for kids in Korea. And so they put him on the, he put him on his high chair, and he fell off that high chair about four or five feet above ground, head first into our hard, hardwood floors. And that, in that second, I realized, wow, we have no control in this world. <laughs> in, a, in a few minutes, your whole life could change going through difficulties in the church. I get a bill from the IRS for over $8,000 that I don't have. <laughs> and um, our boy falls on his head uh, to, our, to our floor. So immediately, Seren picks up Elias, and I log onto the internet. WebMD, right? <laughs> so what, do you, what happens? I just Google what happens when a baby falls on his head, and you know, <laughs> right? And so all these things look for vital signs. Are they crying? Is it swelling? You know, fever, nauseous, are they vomiting? All those things. I call up Jim Rickard, and I'm telling myself to be patient and humble and loving. And you know, he's serving us, so explain, submit paperwork. And so there's a lot of questions in my heart, about the church, IRS, and Elias, and Stern as well, a lot of confusion, a lot of worrying, and, and difficulties, and so we're busy, and that night, I realized, well, okay, we've kind of settled down, and questions are being dealt with, there's no clear answers yet, but we're working on it, but really, the, what can't be answered is the anxieties that are in my heart, the fears, the, the, the hurt, the difficulties, the burdens that are in my heart. It cannot be answered by anyone in this world, by the IRS or Jim Rickard or WebMD. Only God can do it. Only God can help me with my heart and my anxiety and my, my concerns. Well, that's the same sentiment I, I think that's, that's here at, at our church. I think many of you have questions um, and genuine concerns about the church. And the elders and pastors and the leaders, we want to do everything we can to address those questions. And we can and we will. And we will provide leadership and direction through the help of the Spirit for our dear body. But we are helpless 
in terms of helping you with your hearts. Because with those questions, we sense um, fear, apprehension, uncertainty, discouragement, maybe even suspicion, maybe with some, a sense of losing hope or losing faith. We have no power to do anything in your heart. Um, to receive help, to build our faith, to strengthen our hearts, we must go to God through the scriptures. We must go to God's word and be reminded of who Jesus is for our church. Hence the title, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Cornerstone Bible Church. Right? Pretty good, right? <laughs> Something very obvious. He is the cornerstone of Cornerstone Bible Church, and he is the cornerstone of the universal church. It reminds us, he is the one who began this church, and he is the one who sustains this church. Now, the elders are not the ones who began or sustained this church. The pastors are but under-shepherds. This church is not dependent upon us the Lord is our strength. He is the one who provides strength, stability, life-giving power. He alone is indispensable, and with him, he has promised us that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will always be with us. Therefore, with Christ as our chief shepherd, we can climb walls, Psalm 18. We can advance against armies, we can do all things in him who strengthens us. And so, with that heart, we want to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. And here, uh, Peter employs the metaphor of a building, of construction, to describe what God is doing in the universal church and in every local congregation um, this uh, construction metaphor, this building metaphor, is used many times in the, in the New Testament. In fact, the first time it's used is the first time the word church is mentioned in Matthew 16. In Caesarea Philippi, Peter declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are Petros but I am Petra, and on this rock, I will build my church. So first time Christ mentions the church, he mentions the idea of this process of building and construction. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.9, you are God's building. And I know you turned to 1 Peter, but uh, keep your finger on 1 Peter 2 and turn to Ephesians 2. 19 through 22, here we find a general blueprint of what God is doing with his church, how he is building us up to be a structure for God through the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, if Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 is a general blueprint of what God is doing, how God is building his church, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 12 is a more specific blueprint, a working blueprint, if you will, on what God is doing in the church. In this passage, we find that the elders and pastors are not the builders of the church. Uh, God is the builder. He is the master builder. He is the architect. And Jesus is the cornerstone, and we are, we are the bricks, if you will. We are the building material that God is using to build a spiritual structure. And this building has a function. It's not decorative. It has a use. God has an intended purpose for this building that will be used for God's purposes on the earth until his return. So to uh, see that more clearly, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 12, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In our passage this morning, um, we find the answers to these four questions about how God is building his church. The four questions that we need to answer are, who is Jesus in, in this building? What is his role in this building? What is God doing in his church and with his church? Who are we in the building and what are we to do, right? Who is Jesus? What is God doing? Who are we and what are we to do? The first question is, who is Jesus? 
what is his role and function in the body, uh, in, in, the, in Christ's church, in God's kingdom. Verse 4, it begins with, as you come to him. As you come to him. This is not a command to come to Jesus, to draw near to the Lord. This is a description of every believer. Every Christian draws near to Christ. Why? Because the previous verse says that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Believers have experienced Christ. They have tasted him. They know his goodness. Therefore, believers have given this new affection for Jesus. Holy desires. They have experienced the Lord and they gravitate towards him. They draw near to him like a moth to a flame. They draw towards Jesus out of pure desire, out of inner compulsion. It is not obligation. It is not coerced. <coughs> it is not out of duty. There is an internal heart attraction to Jesus that every believer has. It's like um, no one has to compel me to go to uh, one of my new favorite snacks is uh, dark chocolate almonds from Seas Candies, right? It's expensive, so I gotta really, you know, pace myself. But no one has to force me to go to Seas Candy and buy dark chocolate. No one has to coerce me to go to Korean barbecue and have some samgyeopsal. Or no one has to like force me to go and buy my latest new uh, dessert. Uh, you know, it's, which is a Taiwanese shaved ice. Very good. They're opening a 302 in Irvine, and I'm <laughs> quite happy about that. I've tasted Taiwanese shaved ice. And so I know it's good. So I'm driving, and I just, I don't, not real, literally, but you know, I, I easily go to shaved ice, a Korean barbecue, or seized candy. Well, likewise for believers. This is a description of believers. We come to Jesus. We draw near to him, and he is a lithos. It's not Petros here. Petros is a rock that you'll find in any field, an unprepared stone. You would not take stones from a, a field and use it for construction. This is lithos. It's a prepared stone. It's a fashion stone that master builders use for construction, but it is more than that. It is a living stone. We use the term, he is stone dead. No, this stone is alive. First Peter 1.3, we are called to a living hope. First Peter 1.23, he is the living word. Here in First Peter 2.4, he is the living stone. And that tells us the work that God is doing and who Jesus is, is a spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. The physical kingdom is future, the millennial kingdom where there'll be a physical aspect to our existence, but no, until that time, what God is doing is spiritual. It is internal. Yes, there is a building. Yes, we have a website. Yes, we email each other. Yes, we have plans and programs and events and activities, but that is not God's work. That is not the church because the one that begins this construction is the cornerstone is a living stone, the raised Christ. And therefore, his work in his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And not only is he a living stone, he is the cornerstone. 
verse 6a, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In fact, in verse 7b, the stone the builders rejected has become the, some versions say chief cornerstone or capstone. Means, you know, in a typical building, there are four corners. There are four cornerstones. But the chief cornerstone is the first cornerstone that is placed on the foundation. It is not beneath the foundation. It is above the foundation, and it is the most pivotal stone. It has to be the strongest. It has to be the most, most accurately fashioned because it determines the size, the scope, and the strength of the whole structure. So placement of the stone and the strength of that stone is most important that first stone that's placed. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone that was placed. And this stone was the stone that the builders rejected. The master builders, the religious leaders of Israel, they're fashioning their own religious kingdom and they looked at Jesus and considered him unworthy, undesirable, unfit for their kingdom and they cast him aside. They rejected him completely. Now, you know, I do a little bit of uh, home improvement work in my house. And after many years, I've learned something. You never throw anything away, right? You never know when you will need this particular screw, right? Particular bolt, particular nut, this particular piece of drywall, right? This, this useless plank of wood or plastic, you keep it because you never know. Years later, that drywall, that piece, that screw, might come in handy, and it's actually happened several times where I needed a particular screw, and I looked through my toolbox, and I find this particular, and that screw saved me. Without that screw, if I had to go to Home Depot one more time, I would lose it, right? But I'm in my garage, and I find that screw, and I'm so happy. So the general rule is you never throw anything, anything away. You keep it. You store it. You never know. You might use it. Well, the builders, they looked at Jesus, and they said, this is useless, We'll never need this, right? We'll never use him as even a decorative piece or even a piece of just a, 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 one of the bricks on, on the wall. This stone is so useless, we, 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 we must not even keep it. We must cast it aside, throw it away because it has no use for us. But for God, this, this stone that the builders rejected is chosen and precious. It is chosen by God. It is the preordained stone by God to build this new kingdom. It is precious, honorable in the sight of God, and it is the chief cornerstone. And all other, we'll talk about the living stones are built in line with him, in line with Jesus. So if you're in line with Jesus, you build up that structure and you strengthen that structure. But if you're out of line with Jesus, you're not in line with him, then you weaken the structure. It's like that game called Zenga, right? So you're playing that game and you move a piece and one piece is out of line and the whole structure starts to shake and topple because one piece is not placed correctly. Well, likewise for us. That is why we must fix our eyes on the cornerstone and make sure we are aligned with him because that ensures the strength, the stability of the whole building. This stone 
is God's cornerstone, but it was rejected by the builders. And so in their evaluation, they were judging Jesus, but in fact, God was judging them. Their judgment just exposed their sins, their hearts. Jesus was not on trial. They were on trial because the judgment that matters is God's judgment, not theirs. So this cornerstone becomes a stone of stumbling, a stone of offense. They stumble and fall because of this stone. Verse 8, they are put to shame. Anyone who believes in Jesus, they will never be put to shame. The honor that Christ has received from the Father, name above every name, King of kings, Lord of lords, we share in that honor, and God promises us that. But to those who have rejected Jesus, and they're stubborn in their rejection of Christ, they will stumble and fall. They stumble because they disobey the word, the gospel. Matthew 21, 44, Jesus said, On the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So that is the destiny of all those who reject Christ. They said, I would be a Christian if it wasn't for the gospel. If it wasn't for Jesus, I would trust God. The very message stumbles them, hinders them, keeps them from being saved, and therefore they will be pulverized. That is their destiny. Because they rejected Christ, God has and will reject them. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's what Jesus is. He is the cornerstone of every church. He is the cornerstone of our church. And he is the most important stone. And so we are to line up with Jesus. And if we line up with him in our theology, in our spiritual attitudes, and in our conduct, and the building is secure and strong. Any one of us veers off the whole wall and the whole structure is weakened. That's the importance of Christ in this building. Second question is, what is God doing? What is God's work? Look back in verse four, verse five, as living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house. Verses four and five, that you is plural. It's you all. We are all living stones as well. It's a spiritual house that God is building. In the Old Testament, God called the Israelites to build a physical building. And in that physical temple, the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in that, in that temple. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us that God dwells not in buildings made by human hands. That's why... Protestant Christians, we do not generally call uh, the worship service room a sanctuary where God dwells. God doesn't dwell in a building, in a church, in a geographical location. Yes, 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are God's temple, God's spirit dwells in you, that you is singular, and that is true. God dwells in us individually. But the Bible also teaches and the emphasis that God dwells 
in us corporately, that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in the community of believers, the church. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know you, plural, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you when you gather together. We, we read Ephesians 2.22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So we are being built together, all of us together. It's a dwelling place for God, dwelling place for the spirit of God as well. To be a spiritual house. Commentator C.E.B. Cranfield said, the scriptures know nothing of an individual piety that is out of touch with the living body of God's people. We are stones being built together. It's not Jesus and me. It's not my quiet time, my prayer life, my obedience, reading Christian blogs, reading Christian books, and my obedience. God's spirit dwells in believers gathering together. And this is not a moral command here in verse 5. He is not calling us to roll up our sleeves and get to work and building the church. It's a description of what God is currently doing in the lives of believers. This is what God is doing. He's placed a cornerstone, and he's getting all the living stones, all true believers, and he's building us next to each other and on top of one another where there is an interdependent, mutually dependent, symbiotic relationship between all believers. Where you are holding up someone and someone is holding you up. There is an interdependence in the body of believers. And so just like Jenga, you remove one piece and the structure is weakened. Likewise for you, you are removed or you are shaken, the people around you shake. People around you are unstable. If people around you are removed, people around you are shaken, then you shake and you, 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 you struggle. That is what God is so if you are experiencing that, that is a good thing. That means you are part of God's people, part of God's construction. If you are not moved or burdened by believers around you, if you're not rejoicing with those who rejoice, you're not grieved with those who are grieving, you're not experiencing this interdependence, that means you are just a, a brick and a pile of bricks in the ground. You're not being built up together into a spiritual house. Right? You are just uh, decoration. I, I went to Cal State Long Beach, and if you, if you go there, you will know there are several red brick buildings in Cal State Long Beach. And I thought they looked very nice, and I wondered, wow, it's not like not safe for all the earthquakes that happen in Southern California, but they look, they look very, very beautiful. Well, one day, they were doing renovation on a building, and they were uh, working on a wall that was damaged, and it turned out that it's just a cement wall, and they have placed this uh, decoration of red bricks on top of it. They weren't, it wasn't a real red brick building. It was a cement building with a veneer over on, on, on top of it. That's how many Christians are. Right? They have this look of being built up as a spiritual house. They have a look of being committed and involved and devoted to one another. But it's just decoration. Their Christian life is just two hours on Sundays, hour and a half during the week. 
And when they're with believers, it's just, you don't want to share your heart. You don't want to engage. You don't want to commit. You don't want to uh, be vulnerable. You don't want to have this interlocking, intertwined relationship. You're just um, a decoration, pretending to be involved, but you aren't involved because you don't want to get hurt and you don't want to hurt. Well, could this be why you are not experiencing the Holy Spirit? Could this be why you're not, there's a lack of vitality, a lack of spiritual power. There's a lack of true holiness in your life. Because God's Spirit dwells in a spiritual house. And God is you using the, the, the chief cornerstone, this living stone, and he's using living stones to build, being built up on one another. And if you're not part of that, then you are not part of what God is doing. I understand. Right? There are things going on in your work, and you don't want to get involved because you don't need that drama in your life. You don't need that messiness, so you choose to opt out. There are people among your PTA groups that you don't want to get involved in the discussion because, you know, you don't want to get your hands dirty. I understand that, but not in the church. Right? This is how God um, binds us together. This is how he um, strengthens and hardens the mortars and the cement to bind us all the more together to strengthen the body. That is why throughout scripture, there are all these one another's that God is calling us to. Right? The Christian life is not an individual race. It is a corporate race with fellow believers. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. 12.16, live in harmony with one another. 15.7 of Romans, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. 2 Corinthians 13.11, live in peace with one another. Aim for restoration. Galatians 5.13, through love, serve one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That is what God is calling us to because that is what he is doing. He's building us up. He doesn't want us to be, a, be on top of a pile of bricks. He wants us to be built up as a body together, as a spiritual house where God the Spirit can dwell. Now, why is he doing this? Right? Why? Why not just save me and leave me alone? Let me live my Christian life. Right? Let me just live this journey. I'm, I'm kind of an introvert. And I'll get involved with other Christians after we're sinless. Right? Once we're all holy, then I want to you know, get to know them and fellowship and you know, serve one another. Because then it will be good. You know, in kingdom, in heaven... Let's do it then. Until then, let's keep a distance. Why? Because of who we already are. Verses 9 and 10. God is doing this because of who we already are. You are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, verse 10, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is why. This is what God has already done. These aren't commands. These are all descriptions of what God has already inaugurated in the people of God. That you, again, in verse 9, is plural. You all are. And the first description is that we are a chosen race. We are chosen by God. We are people elected and predestined by God, the people of God of his own possession, He chose us. We did not choose him. We didn't choose to be believers. We didn't choose to be part of this God's kingdom. We didn't choose to be part of God's universal church. We didn't choose even to be part of this local church. God chose us. God predetermined and God called. God chose and the wonder is not why didn't God choose everyone. The wonder is why did God choose me? Because we are not, you know, we are, we are a chosen people, but we're not a choice people, right? There, are, there was no, and there is no inherent goodness in us, inherent morality or righteousness or any way we please God. Or you go to the market and you try to buy choice meat and you, you, sp- you spend more money on USDA choice meat. Well, we weren't choice meat. We were leftover meat that's been rotting in a cupboard, forgotten by family for several years. And we were filled with maggots. We were rotted. And yet God chose us and saved us and made us a chosen race of people. Where it's not our ethnicity, but it's God's predetermined choice. And why did he do this? Again, it's not because of anything in us. It's not because of our abilities or gifts or talents. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 7, God said, it was not because you are more in number than any other people. The Lord set his love on you and chose you. 1 Corinthians 1 echoes that theme. Not many of you are, are noble. Not many of you are wise. Not many were esteemed in this world. God did not choose us based on us. It says you are the fewest of all people, Deuteronomy 7, but it was because the Lord loves you, he chose you. Why did God choose us? Because he loved us. Why does God, because he loves us. Why does God love us? Because he loves us. Because it is his good pleasure. We are God's inheritance. His personal and prized possession. We are his treasure so much so that before the foundation of the world, he knew our name and he knows everything about us. He knows He sees right through us and he knows everything and yet he put a seal of love on us and he he sent his son to die specifically for us, for the elect, that we might be a part of God's people, this chosen race. The second and third, we'll take it as, as a pair. Not only are we a chosen race, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, this uh, pair is found in the, in, the, in the constitution 
uh, of the nation of Israel in their charter declaration by God at Mount Sinai when Israel was redeemed from Egypt, uh, set free from their bondage. They were encamped on the foot of Mount Sinai. God appeared to Moses and his people. And before he gave them the Ten Commandments, he declared to them in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, he told them, Now, therefore, indeed, if you will obey my voice and keep my commandment, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God said, if you will just obey me, if you will just listen to my, my voice and, and keep your part of the covenant of this contract, then you will be to me among all the peoples of the world. You will be my holy nation, my royal priesthood. You will be my people and I will be your God. Well, the Old Testament is all about Israel's faithlessness, their disobedience, their rebellion, their idolatry, their spiritual adultery. They were nothing but unfaithful to God who has done nothing but love them, cared for them, carried them as e on an eagle's wing through the desert and lovingly provided for every need of theirs, physically and spiritually, and yet they hardened their hearts against God and turned towards false gods and committed all manners of evil, wickedness, and immorality. So much so, the Old Testament is all about man's sinfulness and God's patience, and yet God files for divorce. Right? God files for divorce, and he serves divorce papers through his prophets. In Hosea, it's a visual picture of God's relationship with Judah. And Hosea marries this prostitute named Gomer. She's, she's consistent about one thing, unfaithfulness. And she has many children and one son. God tells Hosea to name that son Lo-Ami, which means not my people. You are no longer my people. I am no longer your God. You have rejected me, therefore I reject you. You are cast aside. Israel failed. They failed to be obedient, they failed to trust God, therefore they failed to be God's people, a holy nation, and a royal priesthood, and it seemed all was lost. How can there be a holy nation on the earth? But if we read the Old Testament carefully, we, we find that God always knew that God did this to show man's sinfulness and his love and loving kindness, his faithfulness. His plan was to gather a remnant of Israel into his kingdom. And his heart was to gather a remnant of people from all nations throughout the world. And they would gather them and they would be perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. This new chosen race will be, will be under God. God's reign, and they'll be faithful to him from beginning to end because God himself will do it. He will do it all. He will accomplish it all. He will justify them. He will sanctify them, and he will glorify them. He will begin this work, and he will bring it to completion, and that is the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 
31 through 34, Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28, talks about how God will place his law in the hearts of the people. Not in a, uh, tablets of stone, but he will write his law through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And Ezekiel has this wonderful uh, word picture of replacing this heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And God's spirit will be poured out within you, it says in Ezekiel. And he will cause his people to walk in God's statutes and be careful to obey God's laws. And he says in Ezekiel 36, 28, you will be my people and I will be your God. And this was inaugurated in Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost. Christ died Christ rose, he ascended, Acts 2.33, he ascended, therefore he sent the Spirit. The coming of the Spirit vindicates who Jesus is and that fact that he's at the right hand of God's throne. The Spirit was poured out and was the inauguration, the beginning of this new covenant. This new work of God among the people of God this international people of God, including the Jewish people and Gentiles, right? from all corners of the world are, are brought into this new spiritual house and members of God's family. This is the royal priesthood. This is the holy nation that God has done in our lives in the church universal, and in our church. You are a royal priest. See, horizontally, we have roles and functions in the church. Relationally, we have elders and pastors and, and Bible study leaders, care group leaders, and praise leaders, and deacons and, de- and deaconesses. But that's all horizontal. That's relational. But vertically, you don't need me to be an intermediary be- between you and God. I don't need you and say, you know what? Man, I, I'm, I had a tough week. I'm not doing well. I committed some sins. Hey, Peter, you're good with God, right? You're a, you're a priest. You're a godly man. Can you go to God and you know, put in a good word for me and tell him, ask him to kind of you know, be kind to me and forgive me and, and let me back in? And Peter's like, sure, James, I'll be your priest. No, he wouldn't do that. Right? We don't need one another to be priests. We are our own priests. It's the priesthood of all believers, no matter what our roles are, relationally, horizontally, vertically, we, have, we all have equal access to God. We call on Christ, and in that instant, we are before his face, and we receive nothing but grace, love, and mercy. We can approach his throne with boldness and confidence, and at the same time, functionally, we are priests to one another. We can functionally, practically uh, minister to one another as priests. Christians can do what the best psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, therapists, what they cannot do, which is you can pray. I can pray to God. And because we are priests, we can go right before his presence. And as sons, we can ask of him, and he will answer us. Therefore, we function as priests for ourselves and for one another. Where we pray for one another. 
you are struggling with depression, you're struggling with addiction, you're struggling with difficulties and struggles and habitual sins, I can pray for you and you can pray for me and we're not overstepping our bounds whatsoever. It's not only the pastors can pray, only the elders can pray, only the care group leaders can pray. No, every believer is a, is a, is a member, is a part of the royal priesthood and a part of a holy nation. This holy nation that has been set apart from this world. The root word there is hagaizo. We have been um, given a new citizenship. Right? We've been consecrated, set apart from this world. Now, you might say, you might say that doesn't make sense, or you might say that makes sense because more and more as a believer, you, you feel like a foreigner here. You feel like an immigrant. You feel like you don't belong here. And it's weird because, you know, for me, I, I, grew, I was born in the United States. I grew up in Southern California. Orange County is my home. My family and friends are here. This is my world. This is my culture. What? I'm an alien? First Peter 2.11? I am an immigrant? I'm a foreigner? That's what I'm, that doesn't make sense. Why? More and more as you mature in Christ, as you grow in Christ, there, there is, there will be this sense of being separate from this world where people in your neighborhood, your friends in this world, your coworkers, your values, your worldview, your, your hopes, dreams, your aspirations are different. You don't share, you share less and less thing in common with people in the same citizenship, same culture, same society because you're a holy nation. God has separated you from this world and he has separated you onto uh, his work and he has separated you to holiness, to righteousness, to purity. There is this uh, work because the spirit of God is holy a growing and growing distaste for this world. A growing and growing distaste for uh, entertainment in this world. Right? Desires in this world and for this world. Greater greater distaste for prominence in this world. For comfort in this world. And a greater and greater hunger and longing for holiness and practical righteousness because... We are a holy nation. And then finally, the final description is verse 9b, a people for his own possession. Where we belong to God. We are blood-bought people. We are God's people and he is our God. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people why? Because once you have, not, you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How do we become God's people? How did this happen? Right. To be a part of a select group, you have to do something. Right? To be a part of the NFL Hall of Fame, you have to achieve something on the football field. To be a part of the NBA Hall of Fame or to be part of the All-Stars, you have to perform and contribute in some way on the court. To be a part of the Dean's List, Never happened to me. But to be part of that list, you have to get a certain GPA. Right? How do we become a part of this 
God's people. This is the most elite group in the world. It's not anything we did. We didn't achieve anything. There is nothing that we performed. All that happened was we received mercy. Before, we were just sinners who had not received mercy. But now we have received God's kindness, love, and forgiveness. Therefore, we've been brought in where we are now, God's people, and this kingdom is unique. Therefore, we have nothing to boast in, and all glory goes to God, goes to the Lord. We are God's people. We are people of God. This has far-reaching consequences for how we live as believers in the church and in this world. We belong to him. Well, the last question. Who is Jesus? What is God doing? Who are we? What are we to do? We are not to just be a nice you know, aesthetically pleasing building here. No, God has put us here. It's a functional building. We are to be busy. We are to be devoting ourselves to two things. Verse 5, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Offer, that word is afero, uh, anafero, and it's the idea of bringing up or to carry up. The word was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, for Levitical sacrifices that was brought up to the altar. The, the priests would go to a raised altar, and they'll bring these dead animals and bring it up to the altar. The word anafero was also used in James 2.21 for Abraham bringing Isaac up, up to the altar as a sacrifice. We are to offer up sacrifices, but (laughs) Peter adds the term spiritual sacrifices. So our sacrifice is not not what we do. It's not what we bring. Our spiritual sacrifice is just like Jesus' sacrifice where he offered himself. So at Romans 12, 1, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Because Jesus offered himself as a once for sacrifice for our sins, now, as a people of God, we offer up our lives as spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. That means we die to ourselves and we live for him. That means we carry the cross and we say, Lord, I have come to do your will, O God. Whatever your will is, it is my delight, my desire to glorify you and my life is yours. I am not to give you offerings, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, contribute here, contribute there. No, we are to offer up our lives wholly and completely and say, may your will be done. Whatever it is, I will do it. So if your will is change diapers Yes, Lord, I will change diapers. I will die to myself. Die, pride, die. Change diapers. Wash dishes. Cross that street to preach the gospel to my neighbor. Cross borders to preach the gospel to strangers. 
cross international boundaries to care for orphans and widows. God, give my life as a mom. Whatever you have me do, whatever I offer, it is all yours. That is what we are called to do. It is not a little more of this or a little more of that. Jesus gave everything, and he calls us to die to self and give up everything. But that, that, that clause there, you must not overlook that clause, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In our attempts to live for God, we must not leave Jesus behind. We must not leave Jesus behind. We must do everything, whether doing dishes, picking up a pencil, preaching the gospel to the whole world, we must do it through Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're going to sing this song as a response song, Precious Blood. And it says there, sin has stained my every deed, my every word and thought. Everything. Sin has contaminated Every part is pervasive in us. We are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And this sin is pervasive. It's definite depravity. It is, we're clothed in this flesh. So everything is tainted by sin. And we present anything to God as a sacrifice to God apart from Jesus on our own. Then it is not only unacceptable to God. It is detestable to God. It is not a fragrant aroma to God. It is smoke in his nostrils. It is lukewarm. He wants to vomit it out. Only sacrifices that are acceptable to God is one that is based on trusting Jesus, dependent upon him. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, I know my motivations are mixed and confused. I don't even know what's in my heart, but I trust you. My motivation is dependence upon the cross, and I offer up my life, and it's acceptable to God, not because our motives are right or what we do is right, but it's acceptable to God but because it is based on, dependent upon, trusting in. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to offer up spiritual sacrifices. It must be through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and the two most important words are the first two words in that verse. Through Jesus, let us offer up continually to God a sacrifice of praise, so that is what we are to do. That's the first thing. That's the first thing we're called to do. Second is, verse 9b, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter is quoting here Isaiah 43, 21. God had pro prophesied, Isaiah prophesied, that God will form a people that they might declare God's praise. It's not that they might praise God, that they would declare God's praise. God prophesied it in the old, and Peter is eyewitness. He sees the church, and he says, you are the people that God promised in the old, and we are here to proclaim the excellencies of God. And that word proclaim is not preaching. It's not kerixal. It's a Greek word. I'm not going to try to uh, say it this morning. It is another word, 
And it's the idea of word and deed. It's more than preaching. One uh, translator said it's to advertise. It is through word and deed. It is through speech and conduct. We are to live such lives where we declare, we show to the world, we advertise to the world the excellencies of God. What are the, ex- the praise of God? What is the, ex- it's, it's, it's who God is and what he has done. So by our speech, by our lives, we are to proclaim the holiness of God, the loveliness of God, the the kindness, the mercy, the humility of God, his grandeur, his majesty, his sovereignty, and what he has done. Sent his only son to die on the cross for enemies, for sinners such as us. That is what we are to do. And Peter zeroes us in. He, he laser points it in verse 11 and 12. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Specifically, what does this mean? Proclaim the excellencies. First thing is abstain from temptations in your flesh. Right. So when when we are discouraged, when things don't go our way, when we hear troubling news, our hearts are filled with anxiety and, and fear, apprehension. Our hearts are so twisted, one of the first things we want to do is, oh, in vain I kept my hands pure. Right? Oh, why bother fighting sin? First thing we are tempted to do is to give in to our temptations, to, uh, to feed our flesh and to give in to our lust and give in to sin because we are discouraged, because we are, we, we've lost heart. Peter says, no. Right. This is who Jesus is. This is what God is doing. This is who you are. Therefore, the first thing is, abstain from the passions, of the lusts of the flesh that is luring you into sin. Abstain from it. They're waging war, so you must wage war. They're waging war for your soul, against your soul, meaning the, the sins of the flesh. They don't want to just nick and, pick and nick at, 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 our, at, our, at our lives. They want to devour us. They want, sin wants to shipwreck our faith. They don't want, just want to harm us. They want to be victorious. They want to devastate us and ruin us. That's what the lusts of the flesh are aiming at. So we must not have this heart of neutrality towards lust of the flesh, the passions. We must abstain, turn away, and we must wage war. Secondly, as aliens and exiles, we must keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In this world, act in integrity, honesty, living lives, that is consistent with the word of God, striving for that before the Gentiles. And because you profess the name of Christ, when you are at work among your friends, they will scrutinize you unfairly to a degree that is not appropriate just because they know you are a Christian and they're going to speak ill of you. But instead of fighting back, instead of defending yourself, verse 12, abound in good deeds. Abound, devote yourself to good work. 
and the good work here is not <laughs> it, what good works is caring for those who are in need in the church and in this world. Caring for those who are hungry, ministering to those who are needy, orphans, widows, the poor, the homeless, the sick, in prison, the dying, abound in being ministers of mercy, abound in good deeds before the world so that on the day of God's visitation, when God returns, Though they speak ill of us, they will glorify God. How do they glorify God? By turning to Christ, by trusting in the Savior, by turning away from their sins and turning to Christ. Brothers and sisters, uh, to close, I'll say this to you. Um, Jesus is our cornerstone. God is building us up. We are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people of his own possession, and we are to offer up our lives as spiritual sacrifices. We are to abstain from sins of the flesh, live honorable lives, and abound in good deeds. It is a messy time right now. It is. I know God's thumbs are up in heaven. He is happy. He is glad. He's thankful. Because this is how God builds the church. The construction is messy. You guys ever do do-it-yourself projects at home? Right, you ever do that? It's always messy, painful, and full of heartache. You know, I remember talking to an older gentleman and a neighbor of mine, he said he got a divorce, he divorced his first wife. And he told me, James, whatever you do, don't ever wallpaper your house with your wife, right? That's a recipe for disaster. So I, I took that down, I'm never gonna do that. But I understand what he means. Whenever you do, it's the first time doing it, so it's always messy, it's always, always not straight, it's always crooked, it's always not perfect, right? Those professionals, they've done it many times, they've made many mistakes, so they had the experience to do it right, but when you're doing it for the first time, you always say, oh, next time I know what to do, next time I know what not to do, but the first time, it's always difficult, it's always messy, and how it turns out is never what you wanted, but it is, that is how God built his church, Apart from that messiness, all you are is a, you're a pile of bricks right, on the lawn. You're not part of the construction. If you're not part of the construction, it is painful, full of disappointment, it is messy, but that is how God builds us up and builds a strong structure and unites us together. I, I got permission from this brother, so, I mean, this, I think like 10 years ago, you know, uh, this brother, we served together, we led our church together, and we had a messy breakup. And it was just awful. Some of you were there, and my relationship with him was just severed, and it was just destroyed, and his relationship with the church, and he was angry at me, and I was angry at him. He was angry at the church, and the church was angry at him. It just all fell apart. 
Oh, we recently met together, and we reconciled on the Calvary and forgave one another. For me, I was the greatest sinner. For him, he was the greatest sinner. We were able to forgive and reconcile, and we see that messiness was what God used to bind our hearts together. Where, I mean, I don't know if this is self-serving or not. If it is, forgive me, but I, mean, I have nothing but love for this brother. And this brother has asked me to preside over his wedding and to also be his best man, right? That's unprecedented. I don't know how, how are we going to do that, but I'm actually going to be his best. Maybe I'll preside from the side <laughs> and like, preach at him like this, right? Or I'll... I'll Speak and give him the ring and walk down with the, you know, uh, I don't know, maid of honor. Why? It's because, because of that messiness, because of that difficult time. Without that, we'll just be two bricks and a pile of bricks just next to each other. I don't know him, he doesn't know me. I don't know what's in his heart, he doesn't know what's in our heart. We haven't been tested and tried, we've been united. But because we went through that together, there is this deep spiritual bond that God has provided. That is what God is doing. So, right, don't become passive. Don't build walls and don't distance yourself. Right? Don't give in to your lusts. Don't use this as an opportunity for you to sin. Right? Don't give in to the temptation to live dishonorably in this world and to step back from serving Christ. Right. Don't turn away from abounding in good deeds. Right. Don't be like LeBron James. Right? Are you invisible in the fourth quarter? Right. It's fourth quarter, and what would happen? Where are you? Right? Don't be like LeBron. Be like Tim Tebow. Right? <laughs> the whole game is messing up. Crunch time. Right? Everybody's losing their minds. Everybody's kind of freaking out. Fourth quarter, overtime, clear ahead. He's committed, he locks in, and he executes. Right. Forget everything, remember, don't be like LeBron. <laughs> <laughs> right. So this is fourth, it's, it's messy. But what, is, what are you to do? This is who Jesus is. This is what God is doing. He is sovereign. This is who we are. This is what God has called us to do. Therefore, be all the more engaged in, in doing God's work. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is never in vain. Let's pray. Father, as you've called us to offer up spiritual sacrifices, this offer up by our bodies as living sacrifices acceptable to you through Christ. That command is all the more applies to the, to the body of believers, to our corporate church, that we are to die to ourselves and lay down cornerstone at your feet and say, may your will be done. And whatever your will is, we will delight, we will rejoice, we will have joy in our hearts because as Christ gave himself, suffered and died and did your will, we are following him. And we know your will for us, for each of us and for our church, is to follow you and abstain from the lust of our flesh, 
live honorable lives and abound in good need, good deeds because the mission continues. We are here not as a decorative building. We are placed here to hold out the word of salvation to, to a dying and a perishing world that we might snatch people from the fire, that people might glorify you, men and women who hate you now, who are stumbling upon Christ now, will instead rejoice and trust in you so, Lord, may we abound in what you have called us to do um, and that, um, Lord, you would, you would show yourself as powerful to us. We would, people would surely say, God is among, in their midst because in the midst of difficulty, the power of God is strengthening them to, to persevere in offering to Christ, uh, offering to God acceptable sacrifices. God, we thank you. We pray for every heart in my heart that needed to, to listen to 1 Peter 2. Lord, may the Spirit um, sow these truths deep into our hearts and may it produce a bountiful fruit of righteousness in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.